and screwed relationships up and all that, there's always a piece of me that wants to like dissect it and figure out, okay, what part of this do I need to own? Even if it's really painful. And, and so I've always been vulnerable enough to confront that. And so I'm saying this because change for a lot of people feels hard and it, and it can be challenging and hard. Um, but, but when we get uncomfortable enough to, to really look at that and be vulnerable, like that's, that's when the growth takes place. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Feeding Curiosity, where we challenge you to think, question, and synthesize. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always, and today's episode is a very, very special one for me. We are joined by Nicole Davis. Nicole Davis is a two-time former Olympian in indoor volleyball. After retiring from the sport, she became a mindset coach for Compete to Create. And what is Compete to Create, you ask? Compete to Create is a company started by Pete Carroll, Seattle Seahawks head coach, and high-performance psychologist Michael Dravet. Both of these guys I've mentioned on the podcast many times before. Uh, Michael Gervais has his own podcast called Finding Mastery. And their entire idea is that we can take the mindset of a high performer and we can learn what those frameworks are and we can apply them in our life, even if we are not quote unquote high performers, but we can take those mental frameworks and just thrive in every situation. And Nicole in this conversation is a mindset coach for that company. She is currently working on a master's in sport performance psychology and eventually a doctorate in clinical psychology. And by doing this, she is building a the science and language around her experiences as an elite performer to be able to articulate it best so she can teach that to other people. And in this conversation, it really comes through because she's very specific on the language she uses from the scientific backing of what her experiences show. And it's a treat to be around this because she's being specific for herself as practice and specific for the audience so we can then decipher those things and, and search more into them or dig deeper and find more little nuggets of information. It's amazing. In this conversation, we cover so many different topics from nutrition to mindset, mindfulness, recovery, so many wide ranging topics. And we just meander through and Nicole has some so many stories too and real life examples of how all this stuff is so important and just kind of ways to ask different questions than you'd otherwise think. And then as a caveat, I will say that I get a little rambly in this one. That's probably an artifact of my nervousness. So bear with me. Uh, if I start talking for longer than necessary, it's was not intentional in any way, but there it is. I just want to put it out there because leave it a bad taste in my mouth this whole time. <laughs> and without further ado, everyone, please enjoy this amazingly wide ranging conversation with Nicole Davis. I think the best place to start is to just kind of give a little bio for everybody so that you can say what you've done and what you're doing now. Hmm. Sure. Uh, my name is Nicole Davis. I am a retired two-time Olympian in indoor volleyball, two-time medalist. I competed in the 2008 Olympics and the 2012 Olympics and then retired from sport in 2015. I also played professionally overseas in eight different countries during my 12-year career on the USA team. Um, prior to joining the USA team, I went to the University of Southern California. 
uh, where we won two national championships. And now I work for a company called Compete to Create, uh, co-founded by the head coach of the Super Bowl winning Seattle Seahawks, um, Pete Carroll, and a high performance psychologist by the name of Dr. Michael Gervais. And much of the work we do is around helping people find more purpose and meaning in life, um, which for some of you listening might um, be rolling your eyes and think, oh, it's woo-woo, like I, I'm <laughs> not interested in that. And, uh, and so what we really get into is the psychology of performance and a cultural methodology when we're working with teams and organizations um, for training individuals and training teams to be as high-performing as they possibly can. Uh, but also we want to hit the mark with um, with purpose and meaning in our, in our life as well. And one of the ways we knew, know to do that is just to help people be more present more often. So when I retired from sport in 2015, I jumped right into Compete to Create. And I was really fortunate in that uh, I didn't feel overwhelmed by the transition of not being an athlete anymore. Uh, it was challenging, but it wasn't overwhelming. What was most overwhelming was uh, how much more I wanted to learn so that I could help others. And what I was finding through the work that I was doing with Compete to Create and being mentored by Dr. Mike, our co-founder, was that I'm starting to have science and language around what I experienced mm -hmm. performing on the world stage. And so I wanted to dive deeper into that. And so I'm finishing a master's degree in sport performance psychology, and I'll continue on to do a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. Oh, wow. That's very cool. It's because it's so like over the last few days, I've re-listened to your episode on Finding Mastery, which is... Mm. Dr. Gervais' podcast, and I, it's kind of cool to kind of be able to piece it together, you know, the trajectory of both Compete to Create and then yourself uh, over the years, and that was like one of the cool things that I got out of it, is you're learning how to articulate all what you've been through, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, as a full disclosure, uh, I, I've actually taken the Compete to be Create course, hence why we're even talking, um, mm. and it's it's one of the more impactful things that I've ever taken. It, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've uh, heard of uh, Jordan Peterson's, um, what is it called? I'm blanking on the, his course, but his course basically mm. in like setting your life in order, um, mm. psychologically based. And uh, you can take that and it's basically kind of like psychologically figuring out your past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. It's similar to that, but I think the, Compete to Create course has a lot more practical application and in particular, the personal philosophy side of things I thought was really, really impactful for me. Um, and just kind of articulating it in short bite-sized pieces that kind of let, let you stew on it for like a week, basically. As the course mm -hmm. develops, I thought that was really good with that. And we'll have links to all this stuff for people so they can go check it out themselves. But for you specifically, like you mentioned, is transitioning from sport um, was it easy for you to be able to leave it behind and rearticulate what you learned? Or even like, was it something you realized that you had like different mindset than other people that you could then pass on as a gift to others? Well, uh, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> I, I, I recognize very, very young that I had a different mindset than most. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, but that, that also changed and evolved. I would say that we were, so the backstory to my career is, and is that uh, realistically we underperformed. Uh, we were a dysfunctional mm -hmm. team 
for the first eight years through my first two Olympics. And we were fortunate to actually start working with Dr. Mike after my second Olympics. And oh. we started to transform culture at that point. And it was really two years into that process, which was a year before I retired, that um, we really, so to speak, sh shifted the trajectory of of the ship <laughs> and oh. got culture right. And we won world championships for the first time in history. And so I, I'm bringing this up because um, I think the work that we started doing that quad. So every, the Olympics are every four years. So yeah. uh, uh, Olympic athletes refer to uh, our lives as quads. <laughs> they, they happen. Um, they happen every four years. It seems like uh, our lives happen every four years. Yeah. So I had started, I had started to do the work on personal identity, which is what you mentioned, Eric, having a personal philosophy. Yes. And I had, I'd started to train my mind. And so for those of you listening, the way that we like to think about this is as human beings, there's really only three things that we can train. We can train our body, we can train our craft, and we can train our minds. And oddly, I was a two-time Olympian before I learned that you could formally train your mind. So I reached, I reached the pinnacle of my sport. I was yeah. one of the best, if not the best in the world, in my position uh, in my sport. And... And I still hadn't trained my mind. And so I'll dive into what that was like later. But I think yeah. the work that we had started to do with Dr. Mike as a team and as individuals set me up for success when I transitioned. And one of the reasons this identity piece that you talked about, Eric, we call, um, we call it having a personal philosophy, which realistically it answers the question, who are you or what guides you as a human being? Mm -hmm. In other words, like what is the filter that you push your thoughts, your words, and actions through? And if we, if we think about the greatest leaders that we've known in our lives, uh, the people that we've been around, that there's something about them that we just want to be around and we mm -hmm. just want to show up and be our best, there's a sense of authenticity. And mm -hmm. authenticity, if we break that down, it is alignment of our thoughts, words, and actions. And so most human beings, they have some sort of set of guiding principles, but they've not done the work to really drive clarity around what those core principles are and who we are as human beings outside of the role that we play. Mm -hmm. And so there's a trap in that. One of the, one of the traps, uh, there's several traps. One of the traps <laughs> is that when, for example, we get pushed around by the trade winds of life, by certain people or environments that we don't have a reference point to come back to, to how we want to show up and be. So we end up being something that is indicative of the environment. The world is dictating how we show up, in other words, rather than we're dictating how we show up. And we can front load that process by getting clear on who, who we are as human beings. The second trap um, that we all face and is the, a trap of identity foreclosure with the things that we do. So this happens a lot with athletes, and I, and I believe it's one of the reasons why athletes have a such a hard time transitioning outside of sport is because when we're young athletes, and the same goes for really intelligent people, when you're a young athlete and it's, it's really clear that you've got talent doing something, then what takes place is there's this shift that people start designing conversations with you around the thing that you're good at rather than who you are as a human being. It's, it's a psychological construct called identity foreclosure. So what tends to take place is we for, foreclose our identity as being an athlete or being a volleyball player yeah. rather than being a kind, competitive, 
kick-ass human that happens to play volleyball. So two things take place is that one, we're in moments that we perceive to be important, that it feels like our identity is at stake rather than this is just a great opportunity to, to express myself authentically. The other part is then when we're, when that thing is removed from our lives, when sport is no longer there, who are we? And we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I've started to do that work three years before I retired. And so I had a good foundation under, under me to be able to, to shift ecosystems, but yeah. still have a sense about me, about who I am and how to translate that into different environments. The last part that I want to say is that one of the things that makes transition for a lot of athletes hard, I'd say the same for special forces operator operators or the military in general, is that we're used to being in a highly switched on culture where people will literally run through walls for you or die yeah. for you. And that's not always the case. You know, if you, if you're working in a corporate environment, let's say uh, that is, deep sense of tribe isn't always there. And so when you don't know who you are, your identity, and then you don't have the same switch on culture around you and people lock in arms to go do difficult things together and that sense of like psychological safety, um, it, it can be really challenging. And so I was fortunate to kind of already have the groundwork around identity. And I was fortunate in that our tribe, our, our company at Compete to Create is super switched on and living it. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I'm grateful. <laughs> it it for, sounds like it for too. Landing, just from like landing where I did the conversations you guys have been doing, like the webinars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now you can see that the even the culture that's being built outside of it with all the different people. When when you take the course, mm-hmm. can be to create. You can see the map of everyone who's taken the course before you or with you, and it's global. It's so cool to be able to see that that there's like all these mm-hmm. other people that are a part of it. And, it. and to back to the culture part of it, I think that was like the second thing that kind of really resonated with me when I took the course because it made me think about what I valued when people are around me. And a lot of that showed my, my closest friends and a lot of people who are mm-hmm. on this show, um, who I started this with, is you have a lot of these positive tribal qualities of being able to just you know bounce ideas off or do difficult things or push each other to the limits. Mm-hmm. Even when, in, you know, in the other aspects of life, it might not be as engaging in some ways. And it mm-hmm. sounds like what you're saying is when you're in a high performing environment at a singular aspect, it's easy to wrap yourself into that single aspect, you know, be it military or sports. Mm-hmm. And when you get overly recognized just for that one thing, it, you don't understand that the qualities that you have are not transmutable outside of that. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have the, like you said, I guess the narrowing of vision because when I like listen to all these podcasts and different people talk about like sports, like I'm not super into sports, but I, I'm into the idea of how athletes become top performers and how mm-hmm. that their skill sets can be applied to everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm like always looking at more is like they could have done this in almost any aspect. It just so happens that they fell into whatever role that is. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. Uh, I think, you know, uh, the identity piece is is quite interesting because it's easy. It's easy not to do the work. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like most of us have a sense of of what matters most to us. But if I, if you know, this is Dr. Mike's kind of silly analogy, but like if we were in a dark alley and I had a knife and I was like, you know, what do you stand for as a human being? Or I'm going to stab you. Most people couldn't get it out in a few words. Yeah. And, and so if that's the case, then like when you're actually put to a test or challenged, 
Like, how are you going to show up and be if it's not clear to you? And then the second part is like sport is a wonderful little Petri dish <laughs> because <laughs> of the, the feedback loop is so immediate yeah. uh, to, to be able to identify characteristics and traits uh, in those that perform well uh, that translate to just about any domain. And, and those are all psychological skills. Those are mindset skills. Yeah. And I, I think what, I think what often gets in the way of people going for it in a real way, and um, maybe this is just my, my bias or my lens as an athlete, um, because I'm, I'm an outlier, so to speak, in my sport and in, in the way that I got started and my path. Um, I think what sets most Olympic athletes apart from just folks that are, I don't know, um, walking around the street <laughs> is our willingness our willingness to do difficult, uncomfortable things for long periods of time where the feedback loop uh, physically is there, but there's not always like praise involved. And I think for, I keep saying I think, but this follows, this follows psychological theory on learning. For most people, when there's not positive reinforcement for the thing that they're doing, then they, they tend not to, to, to continue to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think elite level performers are willing to do difficult things for long periods of time when, when those, that positive reinforcement loop isn't always necessarily there. They're able to manifest it for themselves yeah. in, the, in the face of uncertainty, unknown, and risk. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is I think anxiety and a worry about what could go wrong. And so uncertainty, risk, and unknowns are anxiety-provoking for the mm-hmm. human brain. I think anxiety is the thing that gets in the way of most people really going for it and whatever that is for them. Yeah. We all have our Olympics, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's been fun for me to dive into and understand how that's played a role in my life. certainly in my career, even though I was one of the best and I had great success, it was clunky and it was really challenging at times. In fact, many days I left the gym feeling like a failure Mm -hmm. rather than just so grateful and amped for for (laughs) being able to get paid to work out and play a sport and represent our country, you know? So there's, um, this goes back to this idea of like purpose and meaning. You can be a high performer and, uh, not have balance and not feel joy and, um, and really struggle every single day. And mm-hmm. I, I think we tend to, the model that we tend to see is that, is that you can be this ridiculous high performer, but you, you can't have, you're not a good husband, you're abusive, or you are broke suddenly and you don't know what to do with your money. Or we tend to see this model often that if you're kick-ass in what you do, whether you're an athlete or a corporate executive or someone in the military, that you can't figure out the rest of your life and how to have joy and purpose and meaning. And I think that model is so broken. I, for me, the way to jump out of that model is to train your mind. And most yeah. of us don't formally do it. What it sounds like to me is you're, you're basically circling around the idea of like mindfulness or uh, meditation or mindfulness as Dr. Mike calls it, which I think is awesome way mm-hmm. of rearticulating it. Cause mm-hmm. over the last probably six to eight months for myself as I finally really gave it a chance to get through mm-hmm. it because I'm, psychologically predisposed to be amazingly fidgety and Mm -hmm. not want to give myself any moment to just sit there and not do anything. Mm -hmm. And most of that comes down to is like, I'm really just 
type A, always have another thing to like knock down. Like, oh, I got to do this or I got to do that. Like really regimented mm-hmm. in like daily things. So it's like five minutes feels like an eternity mm-hmm. or 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, when, when it's like articulated like a skill set, like if you just do your reps as my mm-hmm. meditation, then that kind of breaks through. And I would love for you to articulate it because I think you articulated some of this in the webinar earlier last month and it was awesome to hear those things because it really puts it in perspective I think so articulate what mindfulness is the yeah. definition how to do it yes. debunk myths yeah just debunking the whole thing cause, yeah because a lot of people get so woo-woo about it because I think that's part of my problem because yeah. I get really knee-jerk reaction of like that's so unscientific as mm-hmm. an engineer um <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> yes uh so uh, it, some of you may have seen the a recent episode on CBS. I don't watch television, but we uh, at Compute Create, we've partnered with a, a retired Air Force um, pilot, uh, Janelle McCauley, who is also on Dr. Mike's uh, Finding Mastery podcast to adapt our current content to high-stress occupations in the military to help them. Uh, and so she posted this on social. This is why I know it. Uh, long story short, there was a, an episode <laughs> on a show on CBS um, that's about military where um, there's two officers that walk into the room and one is a commanding officer and he says, uh, if you'd like, you can do some mindfulness with my crew and they're all doing mindfulness. Um, I have it. I have them do it three times a week with me. And the, the kid that's with him says, I just, I just got off three planes. I can't do a meditation thing right now. And he says, hold on. The language we use in the military is really specific. We're doing mindfulness, not meditation. And I, one, it's great that it's illuminating that there's, there is a wildfire that's, that's happening right now. Mindfulness is becoming fashionable <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, with the general public, but more um, populations are paying attention to it because the research is compelling. Mm-hmm. But the reason that we talk about mindfulness rather than meditation is because meditation does conjure up the image of someone sitting lotus position with Birkenstocks on, like hugging trees, and and that is perceived as soft. It's a PR so it's problem. To, yeah, it's a PR <laughs> problem. And, and it's, it's particularly hard to sell that uh, idea and that image to alpha competitive environments. Yeah. And whereas like, Meditation is a way to train your mind, but mindfulness as a as an umbrella is is a is a training of the mind, mm-hmm. and it's a training to be focused in the present moment. So, the the official definition of mindfulness from John Kabat Zinn, who is um, someone who has developed the mindfulness based stress reduction uh, program that is um, in at least 700 clinical settings and hospitals. It's an eight-week mindfulness-based program for stress reduction. He's one of the few people largely responsible for bringing mindfulness as a secular practice to the West. Yeah, to the modern era. I just that's, finished that's reading right. 10% Happier by Dan Harris, who... Oh, good. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. I wrote a review for it. So, <laughs> so uh, particular way of focusing in the present moment without judgment. That is the definition of mindfulness that we're working on. Another way to say that is just, can you be here now without mm-hmm. judgment? And for the for most human beings, because of the way the human brain is designed, it's really challenging to focus for 8 to 12 seconds, which is to just finish one breath without our minds becoming distracted. So in a very basic sense, mindfulness is the training to be focused. And when we become distracted, to come back to focus. So there's this misconception that mindfulness is about emptying the mind or about Mm -hmm. relaxation. 
And one, the science isn't clear, really, that we can empty the mind. Uh, there's various theories out there for the number of thoughts that we have a day, um, ranging from 60,000 to 11 million. Oh, um, <laughs> and, and we can't measure a thought, really, right now. We can mm -hmm. measure activity in the brain, but we don't really know how to measure a thought. So uh, there's a misconception that we're supposed to be able to get to know thoughts. And yeah. that is not what we're doing when we train mindfulness. What we're doing in the moment really of celebration or what we call like a bicep curl for the brain mm -hmm. is when you become aware that you're distracted. The moment of awareness is the celebration. What takes place for most of us, and it's called to train a thought for a reason, is that say we're focusing on our breath. Why the breath? Because it takes place in the present moment. Um, say we're focusing on just the nuances of the inhale and the exhale. Mm -hmm. You know, like can we notice the difference of the temperature when it enters the nostril and when it ex exits the nostril as a way to focus the mind? When we become distracted, for example, I wonder what, um, geez, I'm hungry. I wonder what I'm going to eat for dinner. I don't know if I have time for dinner. Oh my God, I have that, that project due. I've completely forgot about it. My, God dang it. And then like, then what takes place is there's a self critique that gets layered onto that crap. Like I'm no good at this mindfulness thing. This is not for me. I shouldn't be doing it. And then you go on a whole other train of thought about what a crappy person you are because you can't do mindfulness. That is... That is the human experience. That is the nature of all of our brains, right? Yeah. And so it's called a train thought for a reason. You can get off that damn train anytime you want, but mm -hmm. you can't do it if you don't have awareness that you're distracted. And so really mindfulness is the training to become aware earlier of the things that distract us and to, to have a curiosity about how you experience the present moment because what you might come to, to find is that there are common themes with what distracts you often. Mm -hmm. And... If you are aware of that, so aware of thoughts and emotions, physical sensations, and the environment around us, then you can get to some insight and wisdom about how you're living your life. Yeah. So one of the things that I recognized uh, early, because many people ask, well, what did you first notice as part of a mindfulness practice, is that it felt like I had space to respond rather than to react to everything. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, our mind is like the, the ticking, the, the ticker in Times Square, you know, like the, all the, the Wall Street, the NASDAQ uh, indices. It's like, it just keeps going, going headline after headline after headline after headline. It's like, like how do we filter through all that? Yeah. Many of us will recognize, you know, like a situation, for example, where we've been in a heated conversation, you walk away from that exchange thinking, gosh, dang it, like, why did I say that? one thing yeah you know because it's like almost we didn't have control of ourselves in that moment because we didn't have awareness of what was taking place for us inside our thoughts our emotions and our physical sensations to be able to pull back from it and then choose words and actions that are aligned with what we value most and now i'm coming back to personal identity personal philosophy and so mindfulness is a great way to just enhance our ability to be aware of our thoughts, emotions, behaviors, so that we can show up differently. And the only way to do that is to, to spend more time in the present moment and to, to become more aware of when and why we become distracted and to come back to the present moment. And then just as a performance tool, if we want to get into the science of it, you know, like if we look at performance excellence takes place in the present moment yeah. and it's in the present moment that, and, and just full immersion in the present moment. And this follows um, research on expertise on peak experience and flow state. But when we're fully 
immersed in the present moment, that's really when we have access to all the training that we've done. So many of us have spent a lot of time training our craft or training our body um, to be great at the thing that we do or we care about, and we've not trained our mind. So what takes place is when we get challenged and our nervous system activates, we're either in the past or in the future. So all that training's kind of out the window because our brain isn't designed to process all that. And so if we can just be fully present in the moment, then we can access all the years and years and years of training that we've done to be good at our craft or to be good at the thing that we care about most. Um, and so with, without the ability to, to just be here now uh, without judgment, it's really hard to, to perform at your best on a consistent basis. Yeah, I really agree with that. And it's like one of the things that's helped me a lot is um, Brian McKenzie's like breathing training. He would talk about mm-hmm. on, I think it was actually on Finding Mastery, he talked about it. And he was basically saying, if, when you start nas- or mouth breathing rather than nasal breathing in a physical mm-hmm. exercise, that's mm-hmm. showing you know physical um, inefficiencies within the movement that mm-hmm. you're doing. And the mm-hmm. easiest way you can train that is instead of you know applying one of those altitude breathers on your face, you just force mm-hmm. yourself to breathe through your nose. And the easiest way you mm-hmm. can do this is just go on the treadmill and just go to a speed that you is hard enough that you feel like you need to mouth breathe, but then don't. And you just keep doing mm-hmm. that over time and slowly ramp up the speed. And so I've been doing that for myself probably for about a month or two now. And it's like one of the strangest things ever. And in just a quality of one, feeling more present, but also connected to my body in mm-hmm. understanding where like efficiencies and how the motions are, because it has wide ranging effects in every other aspect of how I can notice different things in my body, like sticking points mm-hmm. or just even being able to control my breath better. Mm-hmm. It's such a strange thing because it's then that almost directly applies to mindfulness itself for, for other aspects of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's hard to train that if you don't have awareness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I've gone in runs where, uh, like, I've, all of a sudden I've, I've been lost in thought, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is the only reason why I like running. Uh, <laughs> but then suddenly been like, wow, I'm breathing through my mouth right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that's indicative of a lot of things that we do. We're just, like, we're in it and we allow our minds to wander and we're not really there. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait a second, what am I doing here? And so if, if we can just increase awareness mm-hmm. uh, earlier, <laughs> like right. of the, whoa, what am I doing here? You know, like, where are my thoughts going? What is this thing that I'm feeling in my yeah. stomach right now? I've got like a, a meeting with my boss at 4 p.m. and mm-hmm. it's 8 a.m. and I'm eating breakfast <laughs> and I'm not hungry. And normally I'm really hungry. What's going on? Like if I can just increase awareness, you know, then it's yeah. like you do the training then. And so it, mindfulness is a beautiful thing just to to increase awareness of how we experience um, each and every moment so that we have a choice of how we're going to show up and how we're going to think and behave Mm -hmm. um, so that we're not just mindlessly going through life. (laughs) Yeah. And so this kind of leads to a different question because it's, I think a lot of times people don't realize that the power of mentorship or people that we need mentors or people that we can listen to that'll Mm -hmm. provide us like, the by way I look at it is like breadcrumb trails because even if they're not mm-hmm. there holding guiding you you know pushing you there but it's more of just like mm-hmm. here's something to think about and maybe you can just you know follow this path for yourself mm-hmm. um, did you have any mentors that have helped you and then or ones that just have made the biggest impact even indirectly yeah I've been fortunate to have a, a lot of mentors uh, to 
throughout my life at, at different moments and pivotal moments. You know, uh, I, I got into volleyball and sport really as a young kid because, uh, in retrospect, it was a coping mechanism for me. It was an outlet for a, a, a dysfunctional family that I was growing up in. And I was uber competitive, uh, like in the, the stereotypical, like American sense of the word competition rather than the, you know, the original sense, but like, mm-hmm. I, I against others at the cost of others, you know, win, and I think win, part no of, matter part what of it, kind of thing. I, yeah. And, and, um, like a relentlessly competitive and, uh, I didn't, I certainly didn't understand when people weren't matching my fire there also, you know, like mm-hmm. why play sport if you're not going to go hard, you know, like, <laughs> like if you're I, not going to try get 110% get out. Yeah, exactly. Like, why are you here? Um, and I was fortunate uh, for two reasons in that because, and I'm saying this because I think there are a lot of really poor youth sport coaches that mm-hmm. co- coach for wrong reasons. But I was fortunate to have a, gr- a couple of great coaches early on, one uh, by the name of Brett Caesar and uh, also his wife. <laughs> and, you know, she was someone who pulled me aside and was the first one to have conversations with me like, Hey, you know, like that thing you said, or the way that you acted, like, you know, there's an, another way that you could do that, uh, that doesn't oh, have wow. to be a, at the cost of other people, you know? And, mm-hmm. and she did it in such a way that like, obviously as a teenager, you kind of roll your eyes at anybody. Um, but, <laughs> but she did it in such a way that like, it, like she supported and challenged me. It wasn't just like, Hey, you're a terrible person. Um, this is how you should, should be different. Um, it was, it was loving. It was a loving nudge at the time, you know, and, yeah. uh, one of the greatest compliments that I got from her was after the 2012 Olympics when, you know, the, and shit hit the fan in the gold medal match and we lost. And, uh, what she observed was, she said, you know, I was so proud of you for the way that you kept coming back to the huddle. So the, uh, in between each play and volleyball, you have a chance to come together as a team mm-hmm. and get pulling people in rather than, um, you know, who, how I know, knew you as a kid was just the first person to, to go within herself. She said, I'm so proud of you for that. And it was really tough, you know, losing in a gold medal match is a really challenging thing to mm-hmm. process. Um, and being in it and having a meta awareness that like, this isn't going well, it's probably not going to end well is also really tough. And so, you know, that, that's one of the greatest compliments that I've ever gotten. And she's the one who planted the seed early on for me that, um, that I was a bit reactive, <laughs> um, but that there, there were other ways to deal with it. And I didn't, I didn't really have great awareness of why I was showing up the way that I was, but it was nice to have someone lovingly nudge me in that way to, to plant the seed that like, there's, there's a better version of myself in there. And here, mm-hmm. maybe if you like, here's a direction, maybe you could take that. Um, and then going back to her husband, my coach, I was fortunate in that it was more, more than just volleyball. Uh, so we were, uh, every, every week we would read a different pyramid in John Wooden's, um, pyramid of success. So in, in essence, we were doing character development and, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about how that relates to the team and how to build a great team. And, you know, I, at five foot four, I was an outside hitter on that team. And, um, our tallest player was five foot 11 and, we just had a huge amount of success and just a shit ton of fun doing it. Uh, and, 
and so I was grateful for him for, for laying that foundation. And, you know, one of the things that came out of that for me was a, a way that I've defined my success my entire life, which is based on John Wooden's um, definition of success, which is peace of mind and knowing that you've done the best to become um, what you're capable of. And uh, so I, those two were integral early on in my life. Um, I would say um, when I got to college, it came in, in different moments in different forms. And, uh, you know, one of those people was actually Pete Carroll's daughter, uh, Jamie Carroll, now Davern, who's the president of our company, Compete to Create, who really helped um, shape uh, this company. Um, she actually played volleyball at SC with me, and she was someone that just, like, she saw something in me more than, like, what what others were seeing, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the walls that were up and the edges and all that stuff. And she just stayed with me. And there were just, you know, like moments where she dropped these little like nuggets of insight, just like her dad, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like their, their family's incredible. Everyone operates kind of on the same level of optimism and fire. And it's a beautiful thing, but you know, like she was one of the first people to, to tell me just to trust myself to be good enough. And I was like, wait a second, that's brilliant. You know, like what, wait. And then I was like, wait, how do I do that? This is one <laughs> of the reasons why I, the, the Ted talk that I did was, was centered around that. Cause it's a nice little way to like package a message. But, um, mm -hmm. that was, that was a beautiful thing for me at that time in my life. And then, you know, when I got to the national team, I've, I've been fortunate, um, and have, there have been coaches that have said the right thing at the right time for me to, and planted a seed for what was possible. And also not just like in terms of my career, but how I was showing up. But then I, I've, I've had some incredible teammates overseas that through shared stories and experience um, have helped me move the needle in a beautiful way towards becoming my best as well. Not as well of a player, but as a human being. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, yeah, I, I think um, if we can stay open to, mentorship coming in any direction it's incredible how people can help us move the needle if we if we just are willing to be vulnerable and have have conversations with people because i've what i've experienced is there are incredible places and incredible human beings all over the world i 100 percent agree and i think part of that for me is is the power of podcasts and the art of conversation because i really think yeah. it, i think it really is an art and something that is forgotten in today's ultra connected but quick media <laughs> and, yeah you know the loss of nuance is kind of my thing and mm -hmm. or bringing back the nuance because i don't think you can mm -hmm. figure somebody out in you know 280 characters or you know long ranty <laughs> facebook check test <laughs> posts where people check out <laughs> like yeah I, I just think there's more there's more on the surface even if you don't agree with someone on the surface um and i think just the, the mentoring part of it is like the being vulnerable, being okay to say, hey, I don't have this completely figured out is mm -hmm. so important because mm -hmm. it's just like, if you just say, I'm going to try to figure this out instead of like, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but I'm going to just do it. Or here's mm -hmm. this thing that someone else is better than me. And if they can figure it out, then so can I. I think that's such mm -hmm. a better way to frame it. And mm -hmm. just seeing, like, it's funny when, like, just listening to how you're articulating, you have these rough edges and stuff like that. It's so funny mm -hmm. to kind of not have that vibe from you at all and <laughs> shows how much work you've put in 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 finding your own <laughs> thank voice. you I'll, t I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> yeah it, it's it you what i get from you is some sort of it's like a calm intensity with 
very curious, which I don't know why that's the thing that I want to say, because it's not something I can pinpoint exactly. Because <laughs> I, 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 I love I, it. I like I sense this, you have this learn like this sense of learning that you just want to share with everybody, which is I don't know. Is there somewhere that comes from? Because you just seem like this very open person when it comes to just trying to absorb information. Yes, I, th- I think part of that is rooted in my f- relationship with my father or lack of relationship with my father. I haven't spoken to him in uh, close to two decades now. And uh, one of the things that I just was appalling about mm-hmm. him was his lack of ownership, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. I found out he had a heart attack, uh, like, I don't know, uh, after we stopped talking mm-hmm. and he blamed it on me. Whoa. And that, that is just a, like a, a thin slice of what my entire life was like yeah. with him, you know, like something was always someone else's fault. Yeah. And so that was a model of like how not to be for mm-hmm. me. And so there's oh. this, there's this part of me that really wants almost, almost to a fault at times to a fault that wants to take ownership of everything. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kicking this back to this idea of like vulnerability. Mm-hmm. There has been a piece of me that even though I've not shown up lots and lots of times as the best version of myself and I've screwed things up and screwed relationships up and all that, there's always a piece of me that wants to like dissect it and figure out, okay, what part of this do I need to own? Even if it's really painful. And, and so I've always been vulnerable enough to confront that. And so I'm saying this because change for a lot of people feels hard and it it can be challenging and hard. Um, But but when we get uncomfortable enough to, to really look at that and be vulnerable, like that's, that's when the growth takes place, you know? And so like change can either break us down or it can build us up. And so if the more vulnerable, vulnerable we can be and open we can be, the more opportunities we have for growth, e- even if it feels painful when we're in it. So, and I say that because vulnerability feels challenging for people sometimes. And mm-hmm. we often look to the environment to create a space where we can be vulnerable. You know, we all have those certain people where we feel most comfortable being vulnerable with. Yeah. And I, I'll tie this back to this idea of like psychological safety. We know it's a, a, one of the number one characteristics of high performing teams and organizations. And even if you can create a kick ass culture where it feels okay to be vulnerable, there's still going to be moments, you know, of high intense, of high intensity, especially in a competitive environment where yeah. it, it might not necessarily feel like that, you know? And so then it's like on you to show up and be vulnerable regardless. And, you know, like I, I come, this brings up like, um, Brene Brown was also on Dr. Mike's finding mastery podcast. And I, I I love her because of her ability to articulate really difficult things. And she often gets the question, you know, like what comes first, like vulnerability or safety kind of, you know? And it's like, there's such a, a relationship between the two. You yeah. have to be willing to be vulnerable uh, to actually like increase your muscle for vulnerability. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so, like a, another version of mindfulness. Like vulnerability is its own skill in its own way. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so the way Pete talks about this, and this is also similar to the way Daniel Coyle talks about it in his book, uh, Culture Code, is like, we become, <laughs> yeah, we become invulnerable through vulnerability, you know? And so it's, it's not easy and sometimes it's painful and challenging, but if we, if we really can anchor to, you know, growth being on the other side of it and mm-hmm. also just anchor to this idea that like everything you need is already within you and that you'll be able to adjust and figure it out. Then it's a lot easier to, to get in the space of vulnerability and, um, in regardless of who you're around and what, what, what might happen on the other side of it. Yeah. It, it's like, there's a quote from, from Jamie Foxx. He says, what's the on the other side of fear? Mm-hmm. Nothing, you know? It's like when you get, you know, when you, when you just get up on stage or you do the presentation or whatever it is, like once you get mm-hmm. through it, you're the same person that you were before you did it. Yeah. You know, even if you messed up or you didn't do as good mm-hmm. as you thought you did, you're mm-hmm. still going to be you at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think it's such a, a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's so crazy. And it's like, you know, part of why I think, you know, for me, like the big, one of the biggest things that changed my life was just reading one, the talent code. From, da- mm-hmm. from Dan Coyle and realizing mm-hmm. that you can start at anything, you know, because like, again, being an engineer, like I need to understand the science of something before I'm going to like, you know, I'm not going to just jump in <laughs> yeah. as easily. And so I, once I kind of understood like, oh, you have these things in your brain that are legitimately like from an intellectual standpoint, helping you learn how to do things better. So over time, even if you're not good at it right now, if you do it consistently enough, you're going to be better at it, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a month from now than you were today. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of just gives me the psychological okay that, hey, you don't need to be hard on yourself today. And just like this love of learning, basically, that I've mm-hmm. had forever. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I know you shared that, too, with just the way you articulate um, in uh, Finding Mastery. And I, I'd love for you to expand on that because I think it's one of those things that I think if people can just understand like the like meta learning, you know, learning how to learn is, yeah. is such an important skill that's not taught in a good way. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think it's, uh, I just want to preface this by saying that it's, you know, when we get in cer- into certain environments, our, our brain, especially when it feels threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, threatening could be for most of us, like what other people could think uh, yeah. of us. Yeah. Um, Cause most of us aren't, we don't exist in life or death situations every single day in the jobs that we do. Yeah. Um, but, but our brain kicks on exactly the same way for the perception of threat and a real threat. And so I think it's important to understand that it's, it's hard for us to learn when we're in an environment or when we, sorry, let me be really specific with my language. When we perceive what we're doing or the environment that we're in to be threatening in any sort of way. And we can replace the word threatening with important or a moment to be big, whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? Um, it's, it's all of that is going to activate yeah. our brain in the same way that real threat would. And our, we don't need to learn in those situations a whole lot. So a lot will shut down in, in that. And so part of learning to learn is regulating your thoughts and your physiological arousal so that mm-hmm. you can just be present enough to learn. Um, learning takes place in the present moment. And one of the reasons why is we need attention regulation to be able to organize and encode information that we're taking in. And so if we can't do that, then it's really challenging to learn, especially when we're 
if we're getting after it in some sort of way in life, we're yeah. really pushing to the edge of our capacity. So I, I want to start by saying that, you know, training your mind uh, through mindfulness or any mindset skill to really just be present, to be able to regulate your physiology so that you can get your, you know, your mind right in some sort of way in high intensity context is one way to facilitate more learning, but also just the openness um, and curiosity to, to what's possible. You know, um, and this is really about just having like a growth mindset versus a fixed mm -hmm. mindset. Uh, but the way that I approached my career as an athlete was to be a sponge and soak up everything I possibly could and then integrate what felt right to me into the way that I approached and played the game. Yeah. And, you know, I was in conditions where I was forced to change how I was playing, like technically. So from college to my first national team coach to my second national team coach to my third national team coach, and then playing overseas, they all had a particular philosophy in a way yeah. of teaching the game, both strategy and tactics, but also techniques. So I had to literally change my technique. Um, for example, how I held my hands, whether I use my body, like my lower half of my body, my upper half of my body independently or together while playing, while contacting the ball, while being statted every single time I touched the ball. So consequence on the line every time. And what I found was in the moments that I was more open and receptive to what, what was possible <laughs> and how I could integrate this into what I already knew, the more mm -hmm. learning that would take place for me. And what's challenging is most of us are sitting wherever we are in life and we've had a degree of success already in what we've done and a certain way that we've gone about doing it so to jump out of those processes to maybe squeeze out an extra 10 percent yeah knowing that if i do something different or i try to learn something that there's likely a period of time where i might get worse or the outcomes might not be there yeah and can I stay in it long enough for the learning and the growth to take place? So I love The Art of Learning, um, the book, The Art it, of Learning. Uh, Josh Waitzkin's book? Yeah. Yeah, I love that yeah. one too. The audio book is fantastic. <laughs> because we tend to think of learning as this like upward arc. Yeah, like it's always and, going. Yeah, and it, that's not what it's like. It looks more like... Um, like the EEG of a heartbeat, you know, mm -hmm. like there's peaks and valleys and plateaus. And what, one of the things that we talked about on the national team, I just love this image in my mind too, of, you know, like of a heartbeat and, yeah. what, and that being like what learning is, is that it's, it's, it's not on the, the upward swing that we tend to shy away from learning. Cause we, we get that, like that feedback, like, Oh yeah, this is going good. You know, like this feels good. And, uh, and then you're getting the outcomes that you're looking for and you're recognizing progress, which feeds into your self-efficacy and your confidence to keep going and mm -hmm. trying. But then there's like that dip that naturally takes place <laughs> for all of us where it's like, yeah. wait a second, I'm getting worse right now. And, uh, and then there's the plateau. And so what's nice about the, the, you know, the upward swing and the downward swing is like, there is direction to it. And you have a clear sense of direction. Like this is good or bad. This is yeah. upward or downward, but it's in the plateaus that I think that most people quit or revert back to old habits yeah. because it's so uncomfortable to be in that space with like what feels like very little direction. And so, but that's also like the greatest sign that something good's on the other side of it. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? And so what I would encourage people to, to do is one, to be a sponge, but two, when you're in the plateaus, lean into it and know that, yeah. that that's the sweet spot right there. You I've know? never heard of someone uh, say it like that for plateaus before. 
Uh-huh. Like when you, yeah, because when you normally hear plateaus, people are just like, "Oh, you got to do something to break through it." It's not, you know, like you have to change up something drastically. It's more, not. No, you stay the course. Right. It's like <laughs> you your body's ready to change. You know. Yeah. It's preparing itself to to do new leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So two things I want to add to that. The first thing is when you say you know the, the being the sponge. Um, when I was mm-hmm. doing my gen ed classes for my degree back in my community mm-hmm. college one of the things that I, w- I would do is because I knew that you know I had a lot of friends who were just doing the same thing in community college and they're all like oh I don't want to do gen ed classes like why do I need to know you know something mm-hmm. that doesn't pertain to my major mm-hmm. um, and th- so for my case I was taking like sociology and a few other classes like writing or English and I was like okay I can go into this and say I don't there's like there's no point in be like you know close my, my, my mindset basically to getting value from this mm-hmm. instead I went into it thinking okay how is something in this class going to make me a better you know at the time an engineer and mm-hmm. so I would just be perceptive to anything that would come my way and I wound up getting a ton more value that would wind up helping in some way usually years later somehow is this like a nugget of something stuck and then it's like oh I remember listening to this <laughs> in something like <laughs> years ago or just like interpersonal <laughs> skills or something um like public speaking or just little facts that seem so insignificant but then years later pay like crazy dividends mm-hmm. and then the second one was the to the dips and valleys of like learning as I'm actually I wear both an aura ring and a whoop and so mm. those both measure your readiness as you you're probably familiar with whoop and stuff like that and mm-hmm. When, when I get to wear the, both of them just for fun more than anything else to see which one or how they <laughs> how they both the measure. The engineer and you can't help it. I know. I love graphs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but basically, like, it's fun to be able to kind of, one, understand my body at a different level and then, two, see where things are, like, changing or shifting depending on what I do to it. Like, you know, i.e. doing sauna or running a little bit longer or you know, doing a heavy workout and seeing, you know, how the HRV adjusts the next day or, you know, if I'm drinking caffeine too late or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it winds up being, you know, I kind of just play this ex- like experiment on my body at a level that I wouldn't even be able to know otherwise. And that's part of like the learning part of it where you can kind of see physiologically, how does your body change? Especially the other part is like, if there's stressful things happening during a week, like if there's like a test or something or like a big thing at work, I can adjust and see how bad or good I'm feeling from other stressors basically that are not as noticeable but do have a meaningful impact on how your body recovers daily mm-hmm. it's very it's very new <laughs> and it, it's very similar to what you were just articulating with learning yeah I mean the technology is reaching a point where you know we'll learn so much about the nature of how we're living our lives, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and uh, what what we're primed for each and every day based on, you know, what we've done the day before. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think it's a beautiful thing because we're now paying more attention to the science of recovery, regeneration. Yes. And this for me is, was one of the biggest disconnects and <laughs> eye-opening experiences when I, like I went from almost being an athlete, That's getting fair. paid to work out with the best nutritionists, with the best <laughs> strength trainers, with the best massage therapists, chiropractor, like to a corporate environment where our clients would talk about like, yeah, I'm getting five to six hours of sleep on average, yeah. most nights a week. I've got a vacation 
seven months from now in August, and I'm hoping to catch up on sleep then. Oh my god! I was like, what? <laughs> what? Uh, so, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about you know different pillars of recovery: think well, mm-hmm. sleep well, eat, hydrate well, move well, and then a fifth pillar of recovery that we don't necessarily talk about. Um, the, where there's wonderful research around is social connection, but hmm. you know, in elite performance, no one talks about, Hey gang, we got to work harder because everyone's working hard. And it's yeah. been, it's been eye opening for me to be in other ecosystems where people are working hard in their own way, long, longer hours than what I was working. And so under recovered because the way that the model that we think of recovery is like some point down the line, Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll figure this out. Whereas as an athlete, we talk about, okay, we're working this hard every single day, pushing to the limits. How do we recover in a very intelligent way on a mm-hmm. daily basis so we can continue to push the limits? So we're trying to be proactive about avoiding fatigue and burnout. Yes. Whereas like the rest of the world is working their asses off and really like not even getting one of the pillars of recovery, right. You know, mm-hmm. like most, most people in the rooms that we're in with our corporate clients, less than 50% of the room will raise their hand when we ask if they're getting four and a half hours of activity a week. Oh my God. More than 50% of the room will raise their hand when we say, do you want to get, do you want to do something better with nutrition? Um, and then sleep has been a mixed bag. It hasn't increased when we first, when I first retired and started working mm-hmm. with our corporate clients, you know, there were, there was at least 20% of the room that would raise their hand to getting five to six hours of sleep a night. And, you know, what they're saying is that I'm, I'm deeply under recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's changing. You know, I would say it's like 40% of the room is saying that they're getting seven to eight, nine hours of sleep a night and that there's, you know, just a couple of hands that go up for five to six hours of sleep a night, but it's incredible, incredible to me. And what's, and I get it, you know, like, uh, my colleague, uh, who I can be to who is also a teammate of mine, uh, Courtney, she, (laughs) she's shared that as an athlete, she used to kind of judge non-athletes like working in a corporate world. Like how, how can people not work out? (laughs) And then she retired and is now in the daily grind, you know? Yeah. Oh, I get it. You know, cause like if you work a job, if you work, you know, on a nine to five or for some people in a, in a global rhythm, it's, it's much more than that. 10 to like you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah. You're exhausted. And yeah. then it's, it's like, where do you drum up the energy to work out? Um, where do you drum up the energy? Like, and then if you don't have great energy, then how do you make great nutritional decisions? And then if you're not making great, great nutritional decisions and working out, like, can you prioritize your life in a certain way to actually mm-hmm. get sleep right? It's just like, it's a, it's just a chain of events. That, yeah. Sleep is huge. Uh, it's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's hard because the way we look at it is like, you have to almost compete to get recovery right. And there's a mm-hmm. reprioritization that has to take place to be able to get, and we're not, we, as you know, we're not suggesting that most people have the, most people don't have the time to, to get you know, to train their mind, to get sleep right, to get nutrition right, yeah, right. To, to get do all right. <laughs> to do all this, it's like you, you know. Uh, so, like what, what we know to be true is like if you if you're getting at least two of those right on a daily basis, knowing that it might be a different combination of two mm-hmm. every single day, depending on you know the de- demands that you're facing, that you're giving yourself a good chance to recover and to still continue to like push to your limits. So that's the nice thing about like a device like Whoop is it's like quantifying that for you. Yeah, I think when um, you put it right in front of less you with nutrition. A yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it's fun. And then it's like, then this is where like mindset comes into it as well. Cause I, I think it can be addictive, uh, quantifying, you know, oh, yeah, everything. For sure. I can see you could wake up and you could feel like a million dollars, but your recovery score and your whoop is like 58. You're like, Oh, wait a second. You know? Yeah. Then you start judging um, yourself. <laughs> yeah. And you start judging. And that's when like a mindfulness <laughs> or mindful moment or mindfulness yeah. practice comes in. It's like, it just, it is what it is mm-hmm. and having a sense of equanimity about it and just utilizing it as, uh, as great data or information, um, to inform what to do next, you know? Yeah. I, I like to use it for me mostly is like one just to put the amount of sleep in front of me like the actual number mm-hmm. because before I was using it I think I was I was overestimating how much I was getting mm-hmm. and it and I think that what even more powerful is like this the at least for whoop it has like subjective questions of like did you you know drink alcohol like two drinks or mm-hmm. more before four like two hours before bed did you have caffeine mm-hmm. four hours before bed or did you use a screen device like all those little things mm-hmm. that they put in front of you and then if you you know you keep checking those boxes every day and I think ever over time, once you start checking those boxes and you're kind of like, oh, and then now they're adding in <laughs> software, it says like, oh, when you check this box, you know, you, which you've done, you know, you know, for me, it's like 30 something times, like screen device mm-hmm. before bed, you're seeing a, you know, some sort of impact on some stage of your sleep, usually negative. Yeah. And, and it's like, whoa, okay. So just by doing this little simple thing, you're negatively impacting yourself. And then there's like um, Matthew Walker's book. And then he just was on Peter Tia's podcast the last three weeks, mm-hmm. the six hour, six and a half hour podcast about everything sleep science, which I'm supremely addicted to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so amazing just to listen to Matthew Walker on every podcast and his book. I, I wrote a thing for a school about a quality problem, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 hijacked, I hijacked a quality problem for um, school for like an industrial environment and said, we're not prioritizing daily recovery. <laughs> oh, yeah, with for, for people who work, and as a and then I used data from my own whoop and aura ring to show like it predicted when I was gonna have like a little like flu like symptom a day before because my HRV fell out the bottom, or like if I drank I would see yeah. like see like a negative impact. And then I found data from whoop where they tested collegiate athletes and saw like up to five days of negative impact on the recovery mm-hmm. after drinking. So it was like this. It's just. It was like the, the data is like growing at this point, but it's just like mm-hmm. there's just so many things that by just not sleeping enough, you're mm-hmm. legitimately just shooting yourself in the foot to be as blunt yes. about it as possible. Yes, <laughs> literally taking days and years off your life. Yeah. <laughs> and then not to mention, like you were saying, is like you make poor food decisions where you want to eat worse foods, usually higher calorie density and stuff yeah. like that. It's just. Yeah, there's a cascade that takes place. Yeah. It's so. so crazy. <laughs> and it's, it's, I feel, it feels really nice that you're saying like all these different things that I've been kind of saying to my friends and they kind of look at me like I'm crazy because hmm. it's so new. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is the data and the quantification of recovery is new, but the, you know, I mean, doctors a hundred years ago used to prescribe exercise. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like, and if, if we could, bottle and put into a pill all of the beautiful things that take place in the human body when we exercise it would be the most lucrative pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. in the world so you know we've known for a long time that these things matter yeah (laughs) uh but and you know it's been 
challenging, particularly in the United States nutrition. We've gotten it really wrong and the mm-hmm. you know, the the different fad and that takes place every decade in terms of nutrition guidelines has been kind of ridiculous. But yeah. um, the science the science has been there. It's certainly coming along, but uh it, it's been there for a long time. It's just I think I think culturally we're changing how we think about it and look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the last five years the the idea about around ideas around working out and diet have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Like one of the biggest things that that struck me when I first started along the journey of all this stuff is like I was reading you know all anything on diet and just exercise routines and my dad got diagnosed with type two diabetes and. One of the strangest things that occurred was he would he gave me like the little brochure that the doctor gave him like here you got to watch your diet here's things you can eat here's things you got to limit mm-hmm. and I was like you know at the time I was like really deep into the like bodybuilding diet stuff where it's like you know brown rice chicken broccoli the standard yeah and I was like looking at this thing I'm like wow this is exactly the same thing except a bodybuilder can eat more brown rice or carbs uh-huh. and I was like how is this a th- how is this a thing like basically my dad's supposed to eat like a bodybuilder now but yet no one does this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like okay there's gonna be have to be radical shifts in my like that like kicked my own ass into high mm-hmm. gear like okay if i just continued down the same path i would have ended up with type 2 diabetes too because i was drinking like six mm-hmm. cans of pop a day you know something crazy wow yeah i was supremely unhealthy and then i like woke up one morning i was like i'm done and so <laughs> and then Good I, on you. and then i've been that's why I even do half of what I've done is because of I started working out and mm-hmm. just became an information sponge. <laughs> like my That's I, awesome. It's so crazy now how much I know and then that just leads into all the psychology that I've learned from it, you know, and mm-hmm. the newer science. But yeah, so that's just like one of the little tidbits that I picked up on early on. It was just like, wow, there's this major disconnect in how the average person eats and orients their diet versus mm-hmm. like what you know, someone on diabetes, which is like a huge epidemic, basically. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, we could do another podcast on nutrition, yeah. you know, but it, <laughs> it, it is fascinating and uh, we've reached an oversaturation point with information now. Yeah, I think that's because the of the internet. And so I, I, you know, sympathize with a, that's just a, a normal consumer uh, mm-hmm. with how do you make decisions? You know, like if you can't afford to see a dietitian or mm-hmm. if you can't afford, for example, performance blood draw to figure out, you know, for you, if you're, you know, your unique nutritional needs, because we are all unique in our nutritional yeah. needs. Um, like how do you make choices? You know, I, I time magazine who t- tends to do like a wonderful job with their their, um, the information they put out, um, and you know they've done uh, magazines on mindfulness and on sleep and yeah. on nutrition and all that. I remember, they did a, a section in a, uh, a magazine on nutrition uh, on antioxidant foods, and one of the foods that they listed was milk. Huh. And if you didn't know how to filter through the information that you're reading, you'd get it completely wrong. Vitamin D is what they were. Oh. Um, am- amplifying, but you can get vitamin D a lot of different ways. <laughs> but for most people, you know, most people either have, um, you know, a lactose issue with milk and mm-hmm. or dairy just in general has an inflammatory property. Yep. And 
like that's something I wish I would have cut out when I was an athlete and I wish I would have known about. Um, and so for most people consuming dairy of any kind is not going to be like the, the cons of the inflammation and the lactose far supersede any vitamin D that you're going to intake. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I think that is just, just a, again, a thin slice or indicative of, of just the vast amount of information that's yeah. out there. And you look to what, what for most people is a reputable source when they don't have access to scholarly research articles. And it's like, oh yeah, Time Magazine says that I should drink more dairy. Mm -hmm. it's like, well, you should take a vitamin D supplement or just yeah. stand outside for 10 minutes, you know? Like, so I, I think with nutrition, it's really hard, which again, like I'll bring this whole conversation back to mindfulness is if you can just pay more attention, like you were saying, to what to what it's like for you when you put certain foods in your body or when you don't get sleep or when you have a glass of wine or whatever it is, if you can just be mindful about how your body's responding to it, then you might be able to figure out on your own what you need or at least make better decisions. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the other thing too for me is like just try to keep it as simple as possible, mm -hmm. you know, to stay away from certain things and then mm -hmm. the, you know, the other part is limiting carbs you don't have to alienate them, but just know what they do and mm -hmm. try to go to slower carb sources like beans. Mm -hmm. um, usually helps for me just to try and limit those kind of things. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. You know, like <laughs> um, inflammation is like the root cause of most disease mm -hmm. um, and carbohydrates uh, tend to tend to cause that. Uh, but just in general, like I know for myself, when I look at nutrition as, um, what do I need to limit? Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I tend to get wrong, you know? And so mm -hmm. one of the shifts, one of the shifts that I've made in looking at nutrition is like, what, do, how do I enhance the way oh. I'm fueling my body so that I can be most optimal, you know, like yeah. have the most energy and the zeal and the zest, whatever it is, you know, like, mm -hmm. so we often, um, we, we often, uh, it's a good example. I've been a vegetarian for two years, and okay. I've not. I was just about to I've ask not, that. <laughs> I've not once craved meat. With, mm -hmm. And if I if I did crave meat, I would go have some meat. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I'd be yeah. really really uh, choice about where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, but I, for me, that's a good indication. And I I don't have any information. I've cut back on dairy significantly. Mm -hmm. I I have very little information, which um, I had a ton of when I retired. And, uh, and so for me, it's like, okay, great. Um, but I, I think it's really important for, for people to just figure things out, you know, and like, yeah. and be mindful about how they respond to it. But one of the things it's been easy for me to be a vegetarian. I thought it would be really hard. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why is because, and, and I, this is really evident to me when I'm around my family, uh, especially like my nieces and nephews will sit mm -hmm. down for dinner and, and they'll be like, hey, can you eat this? <laughs> I said, and I'll say, I can eat that, but I don't eat it. Oh, you know? And so that's a really good way to so frame this, it for them. Yeah. But also for ourselves, that that's what we tend to do is I can't eat that cookie or, uh, I've noticed, you know, like for myself, uh, I have a sweet tooth. I've mm -hmm. always had a sweet tooth and I learned you know, years ago that like, if I just don't buy things and give myself the choice then I can't yeah, eat them. That's the biggest um, thing. 
But I have, I, you know, like I have this story in my mind and we all have stories that we tell ourselves. Um, sometimes they're, they're great coping mechanisms. Other times they get in the way of us being our best. But like, I've had this story in my mind, like I, I, that I can't, um, I can't eat, like I can't have ice cream because I don't have discipline with it. Like I can, I can eat a gallon of ice cream in, in one sitting. Like I'm a bottomless cream. pit when it comes to ice cream and cereal. Um, so I don't buy it, you know, and so I know if I'm yep. going to buy it, that I'm getting myself into something. But mm-hmm. that being said, like I have this unproductive story in my mind that like, I don't have, I don't have discipline to just like have a, a, a spoonful of ice cream. So like in the, in the story in my mind is I can't eat ice cream because yeah. I don't have discipline. And whereas like if, if I had taken that same mindset or approach to being a vegetarian, I would have eaten meat a year and a half ago. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Whereas it's like, I don't eat meat and it's a choice that I'm making and it, discipline has not been an issue for me in it. And so I, I, just, I think it's a really fascinating just one with nutrition, like what are the stories we're telling ourselves and is it like, I can't eat this or I don't eat this. And then why, you know, like, is it cause I really care about fueling my body and optimization and performance and feeling good. And like, yeah. shit, if I'm going to have a slice of cake, I, rather than feeling guilty about it, every bite I take, like, I'm going to love it, you know, be present uh, right? And, and be present and really enjoy it, you know, yeah. um, and, and probably what will happen is like, you'll eat less of it if that's the case. Uh, cause we just end up like overeating when we're in this, when we create the stress response for ourselves yeah. because we feel guilty about the choices we're making. So anyways, I, I, I think it's, um, it's important to pay attention to our patterns of thoughts and beliefs when it comes to nutrition, but also just in everything that we do in life. Um, at some point, you know, like self critique is a really good example. Mm -hmm. Um, many high performers are self critical and it, and it gets them to a certain point in their career, but it also becomes the thing that like gets in the way of them really reaching the the edge of their potential. Um, because it is destructive at some point. Uh, so I, I think it's, you know, the, the psychologist in training in me uh, would like to offer up the, the language that we use to with ourselves. Yeah, is, the negative self-talk. Yeah, it, it gives us really good insight into what's taking place in our mind and whether it's productive or not. Mm-hmm. Only you know. Yeah, I, re- I really like that. I think it's really important. Like, uh, the, the, one of the ones they always say is like, have you ever forgiven, you know, past selves? Like if you, the conversations that we have with ourselves are, are things that we'd never tell anyone else in person no we would never say that to our best friend exactly like that's never best way to articulate it yeah because it would be so harmful Mm -hmm. yet we do it to ourselves yeah you know it's like you're taking i I finished reading um (laughs) what is it called it's i don't want to talk about it by terrence real it's a Mm -hmm. it's a look on male depression and how it manifests differently than the dsm-5's version of depression where it's so it's it was written in 1998 i believe it was a while ago Mm -hmm. but it's still i think really relevant and it looks at how Mm -hmm. because of male males are more likely to be alcoholic and abusive and physical and all that kind of stuff the Mm -hmm. the the way they portray depression usually projects onto the family members around them and it Mm -hmm. also carries forward from previous generations it's wounded men make wounded boys or wound. Mm. So it's like this entirely like look at the subculture and how we basically raise our children mm-hmm. on especially within males and how those things project forward 
it's really interesting and it kind of it's, it's really it was one of the most impactful books and I don't deal with any sort of depression or any anxiety or anything like that mm-hmm. but I know people who do and I think we all do mm-hmm. and I think it's mm-hmm. just one of those really introspective books and how we can look at psychologically like what we can say like what we tell ourselves and how we deal with our own internal pain mm-hmm. and can re- reframe it in a way that can break free of a cycle in some ways because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there was a one of the boys he was in like um high school and he was basically like it's like I lash myself every night you know mm. mentally <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I underlined it I, would, I wish I had it in front of me right now but it's, it's like one of these things it's like holy cow you know this is what a lot of people do to themselves and even if mm-hmm. without being diagnosed for it kind of thing mm-hmm. so yep. <laughs> um we've already been doing this for over an hour so I want to be respectful of your time so I won't t- keep you for too much longer um the one thing, since we've been talking about so much information, it would be awesome is if, like, if there was any advice you can give a college student, you know, just about to graduate or entering the real world, so to speak, is there anything you could say to them or give them any advice or something that they would ignore, what would that be? It's a wonderful question. <laughs> um. I have so much that I want to say. I know. <laughs> it's a very open-ended question. Yeah. I, I, I think um, when I chat with college kids, uh, so Compete to Create, the company that I work for, we've mm-hmm. uh, helped found a, a performance science institute at the University of Southern California, awesome. which... Um, entire institute devoted to performance you can now minor as part of your undergraduate degree in high performance that's awesome um, and um, and great things are happening there uh, but so I I often when I talk to college kids uh, so I'm, I'm just saying this because this might not generalize to everyone mm-hmm. I want to be I want to be careful of that um, but when I talk to college kids at the performance science institute at USC um, there is a this sense of urgency like of knowing what I'm going to do and I got to get the right internship and I got to, you know, land the right job or, (laughs) you know, and it's like, I got to plan my entire life out. Um, And my God, you know, like 25% of the jobs that will exist four years from now don't exist today, Mm -hmm. you know, and just the nature of everything that we're doing is changing. And so I think it's wonderful to have a sense of urgency but to really have a relationship with it, to understand what is mm-hmm. driving the sense of urgency. Is it because you're so fired up and so passionate about the thing that is possible for you to do? Or is it because this is a model that you've been working from or that other people tell you you should be operating from? And it's born from anxiety, like yeah. worry that what, what could go wrong. And um, so I would say my first piece of advice is to have a relationship with the sense of urgency that you feel to to jump into something and to really connect to what fires you up most and to follow that that compass if possible. Um, the second thing I would say is um, to train your mind. <laughs> <laughs> if that's and, not clear already. Uh, if that's not clear already, you know, like I was introduced to mindfulness in 2007 before my first Olympics. And there was something about that experience that just didn't sit well with me. So I didn't, I didn't actually come back to it until after my second Olympics. And, um, 
I have zero regrets in life. Um, it taught me a lot, but if there's one thing I wish I would have dove into earlier in my life, uh, it would be mindfulness. And I, I just think there's, um, just not, not even just from like a performance standpoint, but I think attention is the, the most expensive currency that we have right now. Mm-hmm. And kids that are leaving college have grown up with a cell phone in their hands since they were early, like babies. Yes. Um, and so many of them have detrained the ability to focus and just be present. And, uh, you know, it's, it's mindfulness is great as a performance tool for training your mind, but just to, just to be able to be here and to really like love the moments that you're in and to have a sense of perspective of when challenge is great and, and know the difference between stress and challenge. And I, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a necess- it's necessary but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would encourage people just to, even if it's not like a formal meditation practice, but just to like take one breath, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and be where your feet are and feel your breath in your belly five to ten times a day, you know? And just like really get connected um, to the present moment, um, I think is the second piece of advice that I would give a kid coming out of college. And then... Um, I think there is a growing perfectionistic tendency mm-hmm. that, and again, this might not generalize um, to all college kids, but this is what I see in the population that I'm around. And uh, kind of like self-critique, um, sometimes this like that need can help drive us, you know, to do more and mm-hmm. to try to be more. And uh, but it's exhausting. It's a quick path to burnout. And so there's something that Dr. Mike uh, said to us, to our team in 2015. I I recently went through old journals and um, he said, if, if we can just anchor to this idea that whatever I, I need, it's already within me and that whatever happens, I have what it takes to adjust and I'll figure it out. And it's really about like letting go of control, but also like confidence. Yeah. Confidence, right? So we go back to self-talk. That's where confidence comes from. The thought I can adjust Mm -hmm. has created so much space for me because I used to be highly self-critical and I had that perfectionist like tendency and things aren't going to go as planned. Let me just level set with everyone, right? <laughs> you can continue to over-prepare all that you want and to want things to be perfect, but things aren't going to go as planned. So the greatest skill that you can have when that happens is a just groundedness, a robust self-talk that is grounded in whatever happens, I have what it takes, I'll adjust, I'll figure it out. And that is such a beautiful way to like approach everything that we're doing. It keeps you open to learning. It helps you stay in it when things are difficult to, to, you know, and stay in it for longer. So you can get to beautiful and amazing. And uh, I just think being able to anchor to that thought that I have what it takes that I can adjust and figure it out is, is maybe one of the greatest gifts that, you know, I've been given (laughs) Yeah, and that I'd like to pass on to others. That's Uh, awesome. I like that a lot. Um, two final questions. So the first one is going to be any recommended books for people or things you gifted or just impactful for you personally. Um, cause I just love Gosh, books. We, we, we've talked about <laughs> I know, um, so many. A, lot of, a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I want to hit culture code again. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're working within a team or an organization, um, also just, I think we, we take for granted our stake in culture. And you mentioned like the culture of your friend group. We mm-hmm. all have cultures that we're a part of, yes. whether they're our family, our friend groups, our like weekend warrior groups, our small teams at our, the, the work where we work or the larger organization. Like we all have a stake in, in creating that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, so culture code by Daniel Coyle, uh, just to understand that because I, I do think we need others to explore potential. And so it's really important um, how we're building relationships with others. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by yeah. Victor Frankl. I just read that one. Uh, at the beginning yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, like you, you, maybe if you don't care about psychology, you don't need to read the last like quarter of the book. Um, but the, the first three quarters of the book is it life-changing mm-hmm. um and the backstory on that is victor frankel was a trained psychologist and um found himself you know during world war ii and nazi can- uh, concentration camps and uh, kind of really identified what it is that helps people survive in, under yeah. those conditions um, and it's a unique framework to have uh, to be in it um, but also to be able to explain it his quote is a man who has a why can suffer anyhow yeah, it's like one line from that book. That's like Simon Sinek built his entire brand on it. Um, yeah, basically. <laughs> sorry for the cynicism in my voice. There's just then. Um, no, I I totally understand it because I was thinking the same thing when I was reading that. <laughs> yeah, and then you know uh, if if it's an athlete or someone kind of in a performance realm for me, um, the way of the champion, which is an old book, really mm. old book. There's some great activities in there mm-hmm. uh, that really help drive a lot of clarity on kind of the way the way you've the way you're pursuing um what's possible for you uh if you're if you're if this conversation that we've been circling circling around uh, for the last hour and a half around mindfulness is intriguing you and you you're not quite buying into it and you're someone who <laughs> likes data and science altered traits by daniel goleman and richard davidson those two guys are at the tip of the spear when it comes to science around mindfulness that's literally my and, next audible book to listen to yeah <laughs> it's a wonderful book and then if you're a skeptic too you mentioned it earlier but 10 percent happier written by dan dan um harris or just jump onto his podcast yeah uh and because it it's just really great real conversations about his, mindfulness his and, cut and he's through a, to um like the business of self-help and giving uh-huh. a window into that and how it's terrible <laughs> is yeah. so useful and why yeah. so many people have a bad taste about self-help in general yeah <laughs> yeah so punch over there if um podcasts are more your things yeah uh, your thing rather than books and um you know, I, I think if you're again in the college college age um, and you haven't read Brene Brown's *Braving the Wilderness*, um, I think that's a good book just uh, to really differentiate between this idea of um, belonging versus mm-hmm. fitting in. And if we can understand the difference and get that right, and know, and then pair that with some some mindfulness about how, what what happens for us when. when when we're in the space of those two to be able to just like, you know, show up your most authentic self in those moments uh, could be, could be game changing. You know, we've been talking about um, training your mind this whole time. But if you look at like kind of the greatest leaders throughout history that have helped shape culture and history, you know, the Martin Luther King juniors of the world and the princess Diana's and 
those types of people, they weren't, you know, they didn't have a sports psychologist or a clinical psychologist helping them train their mind. They were just mm-hmm. like really clear on who they were as human beings. So they were able to show up and be that in calm environments or hostile environments. And so like if, if there's one thing that you do moving forward, if you don't want to train your mind or you're not buying into it, it's like get really clear on who you are as a human being outside of the rules that you play so that you can yeah. show up and be that more often. I think that's a great way to articulate that. And I think this, this last question really fits into that, which is explain what you call as like your ripple. I think this, you, you oh. mentioned it in <laughs> the podcast and I thought it was an awesome way to articulate it. And I think mm-hmm. great way to close out here. Cause I think that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So I, a vision that I've set for my life is to, to make a ripple uh, in the lives of others. And so uh, it's 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 not too far off from making an impact, but the way that I like to think of it is, um, like if I walk in a gym and I talk to a group of young athletes, um, I'm hoping that something I say or an interaction that we have impacts them so much that then they share that with a friend or they share that with mom or dad. And then that ripple extends to the other five people, you know, that mom or dad knows and that their friends know. So that there's this like exponential impact that takes place. So just like a pebble in a pond. Um, I'm hoping uh, (laughs) that, you know, and it's a, it's a big vision to set, um, Mm -hmm. but it, it is a nice guiding mechanism for me in certain situations um, that that is what happens. And so you know, when I'm aware that, that, that is possible, I really put everything I have into being open and vulnerable because, uh, and I, I mentioned it just really briefly, like I had a really successful career. It was really hard most days. And what I know is that like, it didn't have to be that way. And Mm -hmm. so I'm so passionate about sharing those experiences with other people so that they can pursue what's possible for them, but also have a sense of joy in the process of doing it. And it's, it's really fun to get to a place where you can be in just really challenging situations and be able to have that like familiar grin that you typically have when it's really good to be you, (laughs) even though it's really, really hard, you know, uh, that's such a beautiful thing. There's so much fun. Like it's so much fun to be able to play in that space. And so really that's what I'm, you know, like I'm hoping, hoping through sharing yeah. what I've come to know, but also like part my experiences and, and the pursuit of what was possible for me. And um, that, that makes a huge ripple in the lives of others. Amen to that one. Like, that's awesome. And I, I smiling ear to ear over here. It's, it's so <laughs> such an awesome thing to hear. And it's just having this conversation is surreal in its own way for me. And, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down for this hour and a half since we're all so busy. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy for me. And I, there's so many takeaways from this one for me and hopefully for everyone else who will listen to this. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your time. And then just a, a shameless plug, but I also want to throw out a discount code. Uh, if mm-hmm. anyone wants to jump, jump into the, the compete to create course that Eric and I have been talking about, it's called finding your best. You can mm-hmm. go to compete, compete to create.net. Um, but if you use the code ND, like Nicole Davis, ND50, mm-hmm. you can get a $50 discount. So I want to offer that up to anybody who uh, wants to dive into training their mind. Cool. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes too. So it'll link right there. Yeah. And it'll just, it'll be there for easy for everybody to get access to that. And I'm 
couldn't I gained so much from it. My own personal philosophy, the philosophy for the podcast exists because of it. <laughs> so it's you know the think question synthesizers built around my one myself, but also around what this entire thing is. So it's like it's so crazy for me to even have that, but it just fits for me, and it's like I said, surreal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Eric. I'm I'm grateful as always to. Yeah. To be able to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. No problem. And hopefully we can do a round two someday. That'd be rad. <laughs> All right, Nicole. Thank you again. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening, and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in, and we will see you in the next episode.